If you like what you're hearing on the Security Ledger podcast, consider subscribing to one of our newsletters like The Daily Ledger or The Weekly Ledger. You can learn more and sign up at securityledger.com slash subscribe. Hello, this is the Security Ledger Podcast, and I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's podcast, episode number 139, researchers at North Carolina State University are sounding the alarm about leaked API and crypto keys on platforms like GitHub. We'll talk with Dmitry Sotnikov of the firm 42Crunch about the growing threat of API insecurity. But first... Last week, California became the latest state to bring forth right-to-repair legislation. As we speak, bills are pending in 20 states, including Massachusetts, New York, Illinois, Washington State, Pennsylvania, and, of course, the golden state of California. Despite the bounty of bills, however, passage of right-to-repair legislation is no foregone conclusion, as wealthy firms like Apple and Microsoft gear up to fight or, failing that, to scuttle the bills. In our first segment, we invited iFixit founder Kyle Weens back into the Security Ledger studio to give us a rundown of how right-to-repair efforts are shaping up in the states and in Washington, D.C., where the Federal Trade Commission has launched an investigation into efforts to stymie the repair industry. To start off, I asked Kyle, a California resident, about the legislation that's been proposed in his home state. I'm Kyle Weens, co-founder of iFixit. Kyle, welcome back to Security Ledger Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on. We've had you on the show a number of times, and you're sort of our go-to person on the ongoing efforts to secure a digital right to repair for smartphones and electronics, all manner of uh, fixable stuff. There are, I think now, with California, your home state, 20 states um, pursuing right to repair legislation. Am I right about That's that? That's right. We, we are up to 20 states that have introduced those, which is fantastic. And California was the most recent. Yeah, California was number 20. Uh, and uh, Assemblywoman Susan Talamantes Eggman from Stockton, California, has introduced the bill. And we're very excited about it. So this is your home state. What can you tell us about the California bill, given that California is on areas like data privacy and other kind of tech, tech-centric legislation seems to be a leader? Yeah, California is interesting for a few reasons. One is, yeah, California leads the world often on environmental and tech policy issues. This is the kind of thing that is right up California's alley. Uh, it's also interesting because California has a very interesting uh, warranty law where it says that if you're going to sell a product in California, you have to make uh, ser- uh, you have to make service available for seven years after the purchase of the product. Uh, so you see this in, with Apple products. If you're in Massachusetts, say, and you have a six-year-old MacBook, you go into an Apple store, Apple will not fix it. But in California, they will. Um, and so the direction that we took with California's right to repair bill is to amend the existing service warranty law to say, hey, look, it, it, you have to make service available for seven years. You also have to make service parts and repair tools available to consumers and independent repair shops for that same period of time. Oh, interesting. So you're kind of building on this existing consumer right and making what seems like a fairly small modification to it. Yeah, it's pretty much saying instead of just making service available, make service available to independents. Okay. And in the other 19 states, um, progress to report? 
You know, some progress, some setbacks. Uh, in Minnesota, we made it through our second committee. So we, we had a great committee uh, hearing. It was actually broadcast live on the web. So I got to watch. It was kind of fun. The chairman of the committee had this crazy pinstripe zoot suit on. Uh, and he was actually, he, he was uh, reasonably tech savvy and they asked good questions and they got the standard, you know, FUD, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt from the manufacturers, them saying things like, uh, you know, this is going to undermine our security model if if people can can fix things. And the the members of the committee didn't didn't have any of it. Uh, so now that we're at a second committee in Minnesota, the path is cleared, hopefully to a floor vote, um, which we've never gotten a floor vote on the on the assembly on this bill in any of the states this has ever been introduced in. That's really a, an interesting point and one that it is good to note, because I know in New Hampshire, when they had a hearing on this, one of the lines from the sort of indi- industry lobbyists is many states have looked at this and, and it's never passed in any of them, which is true. But of course, it's never really been voted on in any of them either. These bills are almost always bottled up in committee and never make it to a floor vote. Right. And and so that's what happened to us in Washington. We were, we were uh, Washington bill went very well. We passed the committee uh, with flying colors in Washington this year, just like we did last year. And then it goes to the leadership committee where they you know, decide what's actually going to get a vote. And Apple, uh, or sorry, in, in Washington it was Microsoft reached out and killed the bill. So Microsoft reached out to leadership and asked them to make sure that it didn't progress. And so it didn't. And so the Washington bill is dead for the year, which is sad. And I think it just shows the influence that some of these companies have. And um, what do we expect will happen or might happen in Minnesota? Any similar types of, um, you know, behind the curtain type, uh, smoky drawing room type uh, machinations going on? Or, or is it going to be... I think that's a- very possible. Yeah. Uh, we, we have in, in Minnesota, the bill right now includes agricultural equipment. And the, the John Deere and friends have rallied their local dealer network. So these are the tractor dealers across the state. They've been opposed to it, so we're trying to see if we can we can work through that. We've been relying on on the support of groups like Farm Bureau and Farmers Union. Farmers Union showed up and testified in favor of it. Farm Bureau has been a little bit trickier to work with in Minnesota for whatever reason. But yeah, that, that's the kind of you know on the ground sort of things that you deal with. The uh, Prairie State, Illinois, had a hearing on right to repair this week as well. Uh, any sense on how it's going there? Yeah, the Illinois hearing was crazy. I, one of the lobbyists uh, said that it, the Volkswagen scandal was caused by hackers getting into the cars. And if it wasn't for hackers and the existing auto right to repair making it possible for hackers to get into cars, the Volkswagen scandal would have never happened. Uh, and, and so this is like preposterous on so many levels. It's kind of amazing. One, I, I wonder what their, their definition of a hacker is. It sounds a lot like engineer to me. But two, like this idea that it was third parties that caused this, like this, the, that whole thing was purely Volkswagen, you know, design engineering intent. Right. If they were hackers, they were hackers working at the uh, at the direction of the senior management of Volkswagen, which seems to be have been behind that whole scheme. At which point, they're just engineers that work at Volkswagen that have been instructed to conduct illegal activities. It's only because of the digital right to it's only because of the automotive right to repair that the fraud was discovered, if I'm not mistaken, because it was an independent testing lab that first detected that they were gaming the emissions testing uh, machinery. Well, what was crazy was at the time that they detected that we did not have an exemption for automotive security research. And so the way that they detected it was by actually hooking a machine up to the tailpipe of the car and driving it around. 
And they, they had detected it in their labs previously because the car detected when it was on a dyno and the, the steering wheel wasn't moving and it behaved correctly uh, when you had it set up where you had a stationary tailpipe testing rig. And so the researchers that caught them had to develop, mod, modify their, their tailpipe testing rig to work when you were driving the car out on the real road. Uh, and of course, this is crazy. We should have been able to catch it in software, but doing that kind of software security research uh, was illegal at the time. And I understand, you know, in, in Illinois as well, that um, security, cybersecurity has become a focus of the of the debate there. And in fact, the uh, legislation was referred to a committee uh, that really just focuses on cybersecurity. Is, is that true? Yes, it was in the cybersecurity committee, which is great. And it meant that we had reasonably informed legislators. Uh, and, and I mean, I think they saw through um, some of the, the bullshit. But it is, it's, it's amazing. You get into these, you know, the, the details of embedded software and firmware on devices and what you can and can't do and what kind of uh, modifications that you need to be able to make to a copyrighted work on one of these machines. And it, it gets into the weeds so quickly that it's hard for lawmakers that have to work on a variety of different issues to keep track. And so they really need outside expertise to help weigh in and educate them and just bring them up to a kind of bare functional you know, literacy on the topic. And in terms of the other states where this is pending, um, is there anything to report, either um, things that are on the horizon uh, in terms of hearings or votes on any of these uh, bills or um, uh, on the alternative side, on the other side, maybe uh, efforts to kill this legislation off in some of these states? Yeah, I think, I think the next states we'll see activity in will be California and Oregon. Um, Oregon's introduced a bill, but there hasn't been a hearing yet. We expect that will happen soon. Uh, in California, of course, we think we're going to have the hearing on April 9th. Um, and then in, other, in some of the other states, we're just kind of in a holding pattern. We had in Georgia, we had a lot of great uh, local community members visit the, the state hall the other day and, and talk to a bunch of legislators but we don't, and, and, and testify at the hearing. But I don't know what the next step is after that. Okay, what can people do if they're hearing this and they uh, maybe live in one of the 20 states where this uh, legislation has been proposed? Yeah, so you can go to yourstate.repair.org, so california.repair.org or oregon.repair.org, and we've got a little widget where you can preferably punch in your phone number and your zip code and call your representative. And it'll, uh, we got a cool Twilio tool that will call your phone and then connect you to your reps, and you hit pound after every call and it connects to the next one, so you don't even have to know what the phone number is. And then just tell them that you support right to repair in your state. Um, or if you're uh, antisocial and don't want to pick up the phone, we've also got an email tool. Um, but the main thing is, is to get this out in front of people. If a legislator gets 10 phone calls on a topic, uh, that's enough uh, of a signal for them to, to step up and pay attention. It doesn't take a huge signal. Um, so if you and a couple of your friends in your area call your rep, that will be a noticeable, noticeable signal that they'll pay attention to. In other news, the word on the street is, and I haven't confirmed this yet, but that there may be some changes coming uh, from some of the companies such as Apple, who have historically been opponents of right to repair, at least in the messaging they're doing to co-opt or uh, maybe give, give ground on some of the arguments that repair advocates are making about the need for affordable uh, repairs and parts uh, to be made available. What are you hearing on this? And um, do you think we might see some movement on the manufacturer side to be more amenable to repair in the weeks and months ahead? Yeah, this is a classic political strategy. If you're losing, you figure out how can we cave a little bit 
and uh, you know put our finger in the dike and slow things down a little bit. Or I mean, what we've seen in the tractor and on ag world is is them completely co-opting and saying, hey, we're already doing everything that you want. Why do you want legislation? Last year, the the tractor dealers, they launched this R2R solutions website and they said, hey, by 2021, we're going to be complying with right to repair. We're going to make service diagnostics and information available. The problem with these kind of voluntary declarations is that we have no idea if they're going to do it. We don't know if they're going to have some lightweight version of the diagnostic software that's you know, really limited and constrained and doesn't let the farmers do what they actually need to do. It's frustrating from a legislative perspective because Deer goes to state rep and says, hey, we're already going to do this. You really don't want to you know, pass additional unnecessary regulation. The free market is working correctly and we're regulating ourselves. And you know, if you could trust them and, and take what they're saying in good faith, maybe that would be the case. But what we've seen, at least on the ag side of things, is that what they're promising to do is, is really minimal and isn't it gives them the language they're using gives them all kinds of wiggle room to get out of it. Kyle, what might be some of the daylight between what an actual consumer uh, focused right to repair law and what the manufacturers are promising as sort of a uh, self-regulation uh, option? What- yeah, I mean, so with, with tractors, I think the difference is right now the deer technicians have a, a software tool on their laptops and they plug it into the the CAN bus on the tractor. And it gives them, you know, you know, hundreds of options of things that they can do, bypass sensors and adjust um, idle performance, that kind of thing. We're anticipating that they are, are going to create some really toned down version of that software that has very minimal functionality and then make that available to the tractors. So it's a, the really sanitized kind of baby version of it. We're saying, no, if it's good enough for your technicians, it should be good enough for the, for the farmers. Just give them access to the real software. And arguably, of course, if they're willing to do it, then why? what fear do they have of the law, right? If they're moving in this direction anyway, then there shouldn't be any objection to it just being codified in law. Yeah, exactly. If you're, you're going you know, to make something available, yeah, why not? And, 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 and you know, big companies always hate that argument, but I think it's a very reasonable one. Apple Computer has a big uh, announcements coming up next week. There's been rumors that some of it may be um, them also giving way on their repair. Um, any, have you heard anything on that? Yeah, we are hearing rumors that they are working on expanding their authorized network where they will make, um, uh, you know, right now there's, uh, there's a few... Uh, independence where they're able to perform uh, warranty service in areas where Apple doesn't have a repair operation. Um, we're hearing that they're they're talking about expanding that network to involve more organizations. Um, maybe they'll make parts available. So Apple has a uh, short list of authorized repair um, organizations. And in fact, as I understand it, they haven't actually expanded that list. They haven't added many new repair providers in, in quite a while. Is that right? They really haven't. And if you're authorized, there are all these crazy restrictions on what you can do. Um, they, they make it so that they're authorized repair centers. Where I, I, when, when I was in high school, I worked at one of these authorized repair centers. Uh, and it's almost uh, completely unprofitable to do the kind of service that Apple allows you to do under the constraints that they provide you with. So, uh, for example, if you come in with a, a problem with the motherboard on your computer or uh, something like that, uh, they're not going to allow you to fix that. Uh, right. Uh, or another example is is with the home button. You want to um, you want to configure uh, you know put in a new home button, or you want to install a part that 
that maybe isn't available under Apple's uh, service network. They, they don't provide you with a good option there. Um, but I think the broader problem with this authorized network is, is the, the word authorized. It's saying that Apple, the manufacturer, is the one who anoints who can do certain uh, things on a product. And that's where it's just coming at it from an ownership perspective and, and thinking about it from what does it take to secure and do the kind of investigation and research. There should not be haves and have-nots in the world of hardware. If I own it, I should be able to do any repairs necessary to it. I should be able to pull the firmware apart and, and, and check for security vulnerabilities. I shouldn't have to have permission from manufacturers. Because uh, along with that permission usually comes a very long legal contract it says what you can and can't do. And I guarantee you in that legal contract somewhere is do not disassemble the firmware. So they, they, um, the, the moment that they throw the word authorized and, and you have to get permission from them, uh, their lawyers put so many restrictions on there that I think it, it erodes all of the freedom that you may have gained. And just to clarify for listeners, I mean, what what uh, this isn't just um, authorized repair shops, but in fact, as you as you said, the product owners, the person who actually bought and owns the phone or laptop or watch or whatever it is, um, uh, the manufacturers will again use the end user license agreement or some other form of contract to, uh, in theory, limit what you can do with this product that you owned. Is that right? Right. And I mean, you can imagine a world where the EULA says, thou shalt not fix your thing. Uh, and and that's, that's terrifying. And I think, I mean, this is continuing down the path of eroding ownership. You know, when, in the world of physical things, if you have a toaster and you want to take the toaster apart and turn it into a robot, you can't. Um, but with software and limitations of the DMCA, uh, with software and electronics moving into everything, uh, all the, you know, they, they have the ability to add contracts, these, you know, shrink wrap agreements before you use the product that can limit things that you do physically with it. Um, they can limit resale. Um, they, they limit your ability to, you know, investigate it and turn the Wi-Fi off on your toaster. Uh, you know, you can't buy a TV that's not a smart TV anymore. And guaranteed every smart TV sold that's two years old has some kind of security vulnerability on it. Uh, we ought to be able to get into these TVs and turn the dang Wi-Fi off. Right. Cory Doctorow talks about this as, um, you know, contempt of business model is kind of the argument that that um, manufacturers are making, right? That, well, this is, you know, we we have a business model and, and it involves, you know, the sale of services or the servicing of the product this way. And so if you are, you know, as an owner trying to interject yourself between us and our product that we've sold to you, then then you're violating our business model. Right. Which is the Keurig argument, right? That right. we're going to sell you fancy coffee cups and you can only use our coffee with our coffee maker. And of course, everyone rebelled because that was ludicrous. Right. And I think that was the first time you saw mass market consumers rise up and rebel against companies intruding on how you use the things that you own. The things that, that you know, our modern intellectual property regime uh, would be completely non-intuitive to somebody 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, this idea that someone else can tell you what you're doing, what you can do with the things that you own. I mean, you, if you have a tractor and it comes orange and you want to paint it purple, you can do that, right? But if you have a, a copy of Microsoft Word and you want to, you know, modify it and make all the, all the toolbars purple and then resell it, that's not legal to do. And that kind of thing that you can't actually modify the things that you own and resell them it is a completely foreign concept to, I think, most people. But it's the law of the land. 
So, uh, Kyle Weens, other things coming up on the right to repair front that uh, people should be aware of? Any action at the federal level? Anything happening in Washington, D.C. that we should uh, be aware of? Yeah, so the big news is that the FTC has launched an investigation into obstacles to repair. So they're saying, hey, we're in charge of, of managing trade in the country, and we are concerned that the repair market, which is a significant portion of the U.S. economy, is being undermined. Uh, and it is a very broad uh, set of things that they're looking into. They want to know, are there restrictions on repair? Are there software restrictions, software locks? Um, so one uh, software lock that's causing uh, recyclers in particular huge problems is the, the activation locks, like the iCloud lock. Uh, recyclers are getting devices that they're buying or that are, that are being recycled by, by schools and by other people. They get them, they go to you know, uh, uh, activate, fix, and resell them, and they can't because they've got an iCloud activation lock and there's no way to bypass that lock. Um, so that's an example of the kind of thing where recyclers, I was just on a call with a bunch of recyclers, and they're going to be complaining about that. So the FCC has this big, broad, open investigation where they're going to be looking at software restrictions, hardware restrictions, other device designs where things are, are glued together in such a way that nobody... Uh, can replace the battery except the manufacturer? Mm -hmm. uh, is, are there monopolies, uh, you know, or monopolistic tactics being taken by companies? Um, are there are restrictions to parts making it difficult for repair? Um, and, and they're going to be looking for, you know, specific areas where they can, they can weigh in and kind of reset the balance. So they have launched this call for empirical research. They want research by April 30th, and then they're going to be having a public uh, workshop on the topic in D.C. on July 16th. And will iFixit be taking part in that? Absolutely. We're going to be sending in... So they want examples of designs that are, that are problematic. And so I was thinking, well, maybe I'll just PDF all of our teardowns and send them in. <laughs> or I wonder if I can send in video testimony. Like, let me show you how the battery on the MacBook Pro is glued in. And you tell me if this is, if this is a fair design. Right. So uh, they're calling this workshop Nixing the Fix. And I would call integrating batteries in such a way that they can never be replaced. Certainly Nixing the Fix. Indeed. And we have seen the FTC also take action in areas like void warranty declarations, right, where they're warning manufacturers uh, that they can't void warranties if people uh, independently repair or self-repair items. So we have seen them taking more interest in this um, problem of manufacturers putting uh, really bogus barriers to repair and servicing. Exactly. Yeah, they slapped the game console manufacturers on the wrist last year, uh, and they, they sent letters to Sony, Microsoft, and Nintendo telling them they had to stop putting warranty voided for move stickers on their products. Uh, and that's, that's the kind of thing that's fantastic, because those stickers, I think, are part of what leads to this infantilization of society where people don't really feel confident to open their things. So, of course, if you own it, you should be able to open it. You get ants in the power supply of your Xbox, you should be able to open it up and clean them. This happened to me the other day. Uh, so this is, this is just <laughs> common sense. And part of what drove uh, uh, them to launch this workshop is an organization called US PERG, a public interest group, uh, released a report where they looked at the user manuals in 50 different appliance manufacturers and found that 45 of them had illegal language saying that if you opened or repaired your refrigerator, you would void your warranty. Um, and so they are, I think, going to be paying very close attention to that. Uh, Kyle, anything I didn't ask you about that I should have? Yeah, I think that's the main thing. There really is an awesome opportunity uh, to get engaged both at local legislative level and also, if you're interested, at the national level. Like, If you've got problems with repair, um, there, there's open uh, public comment forum on the FCC site. 
I'm sure you'll post a link in the podcast notes. Uh, go on there and, and write a comment and talk about uh, you know your specific problem. Anecdotes are great. I'd love to hear like what is the challenge that you had where you weren't able to fix it. I, I'd like to see if we could get 10,000 comments sent into the FTC about different challenges that people are having. Um, and then we're we're looking for academics that want to help us with more thorough research that we can send into the FTC. So we're we're putting together a coalition of academics working on the topic. We're looking for professionals. We're looking for geographers. We're looking for economists. Uh, we're looking for uh, you know, people with legal backgrounds that can help us talk about uh, some of the DMCA and the and the, the locks. But I mean, it, I'd say across the board. I mean, anybody that can that can help us put research together. The FTC's put out a broad section of questions. I mean, even up to psychological levels, like what is the kind of the market psychology of you know not labeling boxes with how long batteries last? Mm-hmm. I think that's something that would be fantastic to share some research on because clearly it has a huge impact on user behavior. I think I think this is a real opportunity to reset expectations and steer society in a more you know tinkerable, hackable direction and sustainable direction. Importantly, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, this is how change happens, right? It it doesn't happen uh, by fiat. It doesn't happen all at once. It it uh, you got to grind it out. Exactly. Yeah, we just have to step up and one day at a time. You know. Yeah. Weigh in. Use use your voice. Your voice is powerful. And I think as as technical experts, all of us are especially incumbent to weigh in because uh, you know, a lot of these folks uh, have been in policy for a long time. These are new issues, it's new technologies, and, and it's up to us to explain it to them. They, they want to hear. Kyle Weens of iFixit, uh, thanks so much for joining us on the Security Ledger podcast. Kyle Weens is the editor-in-chief of iFixit, an online community focused on repair. Up next... With the growth of web-based services and applications, APIs, or application program interfaces, have become ubiquitous. But are they secure? Last week, researchers from North Carolina State University reported that a scan they did of the public internet discovered more than 500,000 API and cryptographic keys exposed by more than 100,000 separate GitHub repositories and visible to the Google search engine. The keys were linked to APIs for some of the world's most popular services, including Google, Amazon, Twitter, Facebook. How might those exposed APIs and crypto keys be used to compromise your environment? To get a better handle on API security, we invited Dmitry Sutnikov of the firm 42 Crunch into the studio to talk. Dmitry is also the founder of apisecurity.io, a community focused on educating developers about the security risks posed by application program interfaces. To start off, I asked Dimitri to explain how APIs end up posing security risks for development organizations. Dmitry Sotnikov, Vice President of Cloud Platform at 42crunch.com and also the host of apisecurity.io community. So 42crunch is an API security company. We have a platform Uh, that enables companies to enable API security all the way through their DevSecOps cycle. One of the issues in the API security world these days is that the problem grew so quickly and and emerged so quickly. Technology, but even more importantly, just understanding of what API security is, is lagging. And frankly, a lot of people, a lot of companies out there, they're confused. Uh, and there are many, many vendors just coming to them and, and saying that they have a silver bullet, that they have a, a web application a firewall 
that can give them security, or they have API gateway that would give them security, or agency system that would give them security. And as we've discussed on this podcast, security is a multi-layered thing, and especially in API security world. And so I was one of the people who've set up that community site, apisecurity.io, with the goal of educating the community, helping people share their news, be able to, to see the latest standards, uh, latest regulations, latest best practices on API security. So that, that is the site that I'm part-time hosting, maintaining, and I uh, would encourage everyone to join. Really interesting and very relevant to the topic that we're talking about today, Dimitri, which was a story that came out last week um, based on some research that was talking about leaks of both cryptographic and API keys. This is a research project that was carried out by North Carolina State University. Tell us a little bit about um, this research and what exactly the findings were, because I know you've written about it as well. It's been known that every now and then developers uh, would unfortunately leave their API keys or encryption keys in the source code. So the, the problem is that Obviously, when you're using an external API, you have some sort of access to that API, some sort of access key or um, your account, your credentials, uh, much like you have your credentials when you use any, any external service. And so when you have an application that needs to use an external API, and, and these days APIs are everywhere, so whether it's um, your uh, AWS or Azure account, uh, or maybe some external email service or maybe your credit card processing service or anything, you need keys for that, right? Your application needs to somehow authenticate and prove to the external service that you are who you are. And so some developers just put it in their source code. Uh, that has been known, but I guess the extent um, of that has not. And so a few researchers from uh, North Carolina State University effectively scanned all the open, all the public repositories on, on GitHub, which is the most popular um, source code repository system out there. And they scanned those repositories and they used basically pattern matching, but they knew some of the, uh, the way that some of those um, keys typically look um, like access keys to, to GitHub itself or to Amazon or, or Azure and, and so on. And so they um, ran those pattern matching algorithms and they found more than 100,000 public GitHub repositories that have those keys in the open. So anyone could find those just like those researchers did and effectively take over the accounts. So use those Amazon accounts or those Stripe accounts or those Azure accounts themselves. Okay. So in this case, it was researchers from North Carolina State University who did the research. But I know you and I were talking at the RSA conference, and obviously, uh, cyber criminals and sophisticated state actors are hip to this problem as well. They are looking to leverage APIs and, and this type of leaked data to gain access uh, to sensitive systems and environments. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Akamai recently came out um, uh, with their uh, with their latest uh, statistics on the on the web traffic going through their systems, and they said that uh, last year eighty three percent of all traffic uh, that they saw was API traffic. So there's most of the systems out there are using APIs these days, and and obviously the 
criminals are taking advantage of that. And we are seeing more and more attacks coming uh, uh, through APIs and, and attackers looking at APIs as the way to get direct access to the backends and to the functionality of the platforms. Um, Gartner expects that by 2022, it's going to be the number one attack vector. And I, I think we're definitely on the way to get there. Right. And uh, according to the article, and uh, ZDNet uh, wrote this up, the team analyzed around 680,000 repos just using the GitHub search API, and then another 3.3 million repos, and these are source code repositories, it's repos, that had been recorded in Google's BigQuery database, right? So that's, they both use GitHub's API, which I guess had been done before, but then they also added this search against Google's BigQuery database to find even more repositories that had been indexed, and that's what they're deriving their data from. What is the danger in this for companies who might unwittingly have information like this out there in the public? domain, uh, Dimitri? So the danger is that someone finds those keys, again, the keys are in the open, and they can use the keys to get full access to these other services. I mean, the, the extent of the danger depends on the extent of your application relying on those services. For example, if it's your Amazon, your AWS, or your Azure access, and you're using those for your production systems, then someone having those keys could either just use the keys to host their own payloads, do some Bitcoin mining or something, or they could do something to your production systems running there, right? They could kill your systems, they could access your, your files, your, your storage there, and so on. If it's an external service like, like Stripe that you're using for credit card processing, that someone would have access to that system and would actually be able to do something with your credit card accounts that you have on file. To find these, they use pattern matching or maybe anti-pattern matching to pull these uh, cryptographic keys and API keys out of the um, mass of data in these repositories, right? Exactly. So it's just to give you an example, uh, if you were to find, for example, um, credit card information in some files, you would want to look for whatever, 16-digit uh, numbers yes. or like 4 by 4 by 4 by 4 kind of numbers. So that, that's exactly the way that you could look for, uh, for, for those right. keys as long as you know the pattern. And you mentioned that uh, developers might uh, leave these keys in their source code. Is there a reason for that? Is that them skipping necessary security steps and kind of taking a shortcut? Or do they just do it inadvertently? I, I think they, in most cases... That's just the easiest way for them to do, right? Because they, they need, so they're, they're writing their source code. Uh, they need to, um, to access some other system. They register with that system. They get the keys from that system. And so in their source code, when they initialize their connection to the system, they need to provide those keys. And so they just put that in their source code to do that. So I, I'd say that's mostly lack of education and, and lack of understanding on the seriousness of the issue. I guess for uh, organizations, this poses a serious threat. And again, uh, according to ZDNet, anyway, you know, there were suggestions, I think in the process of doing this research, the uh, North Carolina State University researchers came across what appear to be some um, potentially pretty big data breaches, data on college applicants and so on that was accessible as a result of this. What is the solution for companies that might 
be doing application development or have outsourced application development to third parties and are really worried about this risk? Obviously, these repositories uh, made things even worse because they were public. So you could easily, anyone on the internet could just have access. But even if they were private, I wouldn't recommend keeping your keys in the source code anyway, because even private repositories, typically companies would have some other tools and systems that would have access uh, to the source code. So obviously you have the source code uh, downloaded to your developer machines. Um, uh, you have the source code accessed by your continuous integration, continuous delivery systems. So uh, if you have your keys in the source code, that, that's bad, even in private repositories. Whatever you do, you need to make sure you understand the implications, where your source code ends up being, uh, where it is decrypted, what are the, um, who can access that, what, where you are storing your, your files. If we were to uh, say to companies uh, who might be listening or developers who might be listening, top three things to do to address a security risk, both in the short term and the long term, I'm guessing you know step one might be make sure your repositories aren't public. Uh, <laughs> but I don't know. What are your top three? The number one thing is, is just to acknowledge that the issue exists. So be aware of it and then make sure that you understand what your risks are and what, what APIs you have out there. Make sure that your developers start with the API security in mind, right? So go all the way to the left. Uh, don't do just DevOps, do DevSecOps. Make sure that security is just part of your development. Uh, I know that some companies have been trying to just put some sort of a web application firewall or WAF later on on top of, you, of their endpoints, and they would expect that security would somehow automatically be added. And then the web obviously has no idea of the way that your application is supposed to work, your API is supposed to work. So it has no way to figure out which traffic is attacked traffic and which traffic is a regular traffic. Or people expect some sort of um, artificial intelligence machine learning to somehow automatically <laughs> figure everything out and, and add security to your systems. Again, it, it's very hard to expect that kind of magic. So start all the way to the left, uh, figure out which APIs you have, what are the risks, how you protect them. And then just, again, look at the architecture, trust no one, don't expect your clients to be safe or your other microservices to be safe and just expect anything to be broken and, and make mm -hmm. sure that every microservice, every API is secure. Dimitri, is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't? Uh, that, that's a great question. Yeah. <laughs> Was right. there anything well, you wanted uh, to say that I didn't ask you about? <laughs> uh, be the host of the hksecurity.io uh, community. I'd, I'd love everyone <laughs> to join that. Um, it's, it's a growing community. We have about 2,000 people now subscribed to the newsletter and submitting their news. Uh, there are some uh, free tools uh, like for the API security audits. Uh, that are there. Uh, there's an uh, API security encyclopedia that, again, um, keeps growing. So join the community, submit your news, submit your thoughts. Um, as I mentioned, I, I think API security, you know, we need education there. Dmitry Sotnikov of 42Crunch, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.